Hey guys, this is Jessica and Jamil talking about PT Below the Waist. We are two pelvic floor physical therapists here to talk about bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction and how physical therapy can help. Don't forget, if you like our podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Comments or questions can be sent to us at ptbelowthewaist at gmail.com. All right, guys, so today we are here with um, Amy Stein and then Dr. Iris Orbach, and we are here to basically celebrate and concluding the end of, uh, Endometriosis Awareness yes, Month. Yes, March is Endo Awareness Month, so we're so glad that we have these two professionals to be able to feature in our podcast this month. Yeah, so Amy, welcome back. We're so excited to have you. Just as a reminder, if this is your first time kind of tuning in, Amy is a physical therapist in New York. She owns Beyond Basics Physical Therapy, wrote Heal Pelvic Pain, and co-wrote with our second guest, Dr. Iris, Beating Endo, How to Reclaim Your Life with Endometriosis. So thanks for coming back with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, and then Dr. Um, Orbach, you are an OBGYN that's mostly NLA now, um, co-wrote the book, but thanks for being here today with us as well. It's an honor to be here and to be here with Amy, my co-author. I miss her. Oh, I'm sure it's like, it's so hard to get all of y'all together. So I'm super yeah. excited. To <laughs> so thank you for your time. So before we dig in, can you guys tell us how you guys met, how you guys became, how you guys started working together and like how this passion with treating endometriosis came about? Do you want to answer that, Amy? <laughs> I was going to say, I'll let you go first. Okay, sure. I think... I think both Amy and I are similar in that we're both passionate in, in our fields. Uh, my specialty being pelvic pain and endometriosis and Amy's being um, pelvic floor PT. And what I realized pretty soon after I finished my fellowship is that, yes, we know that we need excision of endometriosis to remove the lesions of endometriosis, but because of the diagnostic delay often of 10 years from symptom onset to um, diagnosis, so many other systems come into play and have subsequent issues. And, and, and the first and foremost is the musculoskeletal system, because if a patient has, let's say, constipation and they're straining and pushing, their muscles get tighter. If they're urinating way too many times, um, they're pushing their pelvic floor. If they're having painful sex, they're squeezing in anticipation of that fear. And I don't think Amy or I remembers exactly how we met because we had a hard time nailing it down when we wrote the book. But I, I think Amy reached, I, I don't know exactly, but nevertheless, it was a match made in heaven because I really found that my patients with endometriosis who were treated with pelvic floor physical therapy overall got better. Mm -hmm. um, and then we started sharing many, many, many patients. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. very neat. Like yeah, I think it was a patient that connected us, mm -hmm. um, and we started talking after that, and I also was experiencing patients going through the medical maze and patients going through surgery after surgery after surgery, so uh, Dr. Orbach um, educated me as well as I'm I mentioned this in the book, the International Pelvic Pain Society, it was a realization that like, oh, as a PT, you, you need to learn that there are two different surgeries that are happening with these patients and that one, um, one is excision and one is ablation and they're very different and you have to treat it, um, you have to know that they're different and understand which, you know, what each one does. And I was seeing patients that were having multiple surgeries. But then when I had the experience of, of patients having excision surgery, majority of the time, if not all, with most surgeons, not all, but um, it was more like a one, one done well, or as, I, as Iris says, uh, I think that's what you say. One, one surgery done, done right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we connected. We both needed each other. And we yeah. all... We all need a good pelvic PT and a wonderful excision surgeon. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think like that could be, you know, if you're starting out alone, maybe as a doctor, but like as a pelvic floor PT, it's so hard to know when is the right time to collaborate or like 
when do you refer out? When do you refer it to a gastro and things like that? And so I was, and this is kind of further down in our questions, but I think you'll just kind of like mentioned it so nicely. It's like, when is a good time to start collaborating? Is that immediately? Is that after you try conservative care for a little bit? Like, what do you guys think about that? And I'm sure there's not a perfect, perfect scenario, but there's probably some kind of idea of when to refer out and things like that. I, I think you have to know the patient and get a feeling of what works for the patient. Some patients, you have to really build a trust because unfortunately, if they've seen 10 or 15 other doctors prior to coming to your office, there's the assumption that, oh, this is just another one who's not going to help me. So it, it, it depends on the patient. But typically, if there's this 10-year diagnostic delay, pretty much all the different organ systems are affected. Like we talked about the musculoskeletal. Um, many women develop a bacterial overgrowth in their gut. Mm -hmm. Many women develop like a bladder hypersensitivity. Many women need... Um, to learn how to eat properly, to eat anti-inflammatory. Um, many women are quite anxious or depressed because they've been going 10 years from doctor to doctor with this quote unquote invisible disease that everyone says it's in your head. You know, drink a glass of wine and you'll be fine and sex won't hurt or like those nonsensical statements that they make. Mm -hmm. So I, when they come into me, they say, oh, I want surgery tomorrow. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I need to kind of educate them, A, what is the disease? B, how has it affected your whole body? And why we can't undo 10 years of symptoms with one surgery. Mm -hmm. So we need to start undoing all the different things. So for me, my first stop is I send the, my patients to pelvic floor PT. And I usually have them do with a qualified good PT, which I know Amy can speak to because all PT is not created equally. Right. And I usually will send them first off for pelvic floor PT. And then I'll start touching on lifestyle things with them. If I notice someone's very anxious or very depressed, um, I will query them about that and maybe give them some suggestions about a pain psychologist and really get them to understand how our brain um, kind of, it, it, it's, the, if someone's anxious or depressed, sort of the same part of our brain is being stimulated when we're in pain from endometriosis. So we, we and, and being anxious or depressed can worsen our pain. So we, we need to treat the whole body. So my first go-to is PT for pretty much everyone who walks in my office. If they have tight muscles, I've, I've, I think I can remember one in the last three years who didn't have tight muscles who came to my office for a consult. Mm -hmm. Um, and then discuss appropriately in time or all together. It just depends on what the patients can handle. Well, I really love in your book how that was your approach that when people come to you and they want surgery right away, that you really wanted to address it holistically and have them see a PT and nutritionist make lifestyle changes. So I really appreciated reading that. And when do you, so when is it the point where patients are appropriate to then get excision surgery? Is it after they've reached a plateau with all those lifestyle changes and all the PT that they repeat or started noticing improvements and then add in and then do the excision surgery? And, and yes, yeah, I know. That's, that's a good question. I, I explain to the patients, you know, they come in and they think all their pain is endo pain. So they're telling me sitting for their, you know, hour and a half commute hurts um, it hurts with painful sex, their back hurts. When someone touches my arm, it hurts. Um, and then they go on about all these like shooting pains and nerve pains and bloating. And, and I, I just want them, it's like a Venn diagram that's all mushed together initially. They think it's all endo pain, but I want them to start understanding what's musculoskeletal pain what's like if they have bladder hypersensitivity or if you call it IC, whatever you want to call that painful bladder syndrome. I think it's more just <laughs> bladder hypersensitivity, but what is attributed to that? What is attributed to um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? I want them to start making changes. They don't have to make full changes, but I want them to start seeing the difference and identifying that the tight muscle pain is not their endo pain because my surgery is not going to fix tight muscle pain and my surgery right. is not going to fix the bloating from bacterial overgrowth and my surgery is not going to fix 
if they have a flared central nervous system known as central sensitization. And if they're having shooting pains all over their body and their body hurts everywhere and you just touch their arm and that hurts, like my surgery's not gonna fix that either. My surgery's gonna cut out the endo that will stop aggravating those things. So it's, it's, it's with most patients, I think within three months, if they follow my protocol, I can get them to the point where they're ready to have surgery. Mm -hmm. But some patients come back after six weeks and I'm like, so tell me about everything you've done. And they're like, I'm not better. You said I'd be better. And I'm like, well, how was the PT? Oh, I didn't go. Mm -hmm. How was changing nutrition? I didn't go. What was the SIBO test? I didn't go. So, I mean, it's a hard, it's a, it's a full-time job to, to do all these things. Um, but it's just once I start them teasing apart and understanding that their pain is coming from different places, that's the perfect time to operate on them. I really feel like that was a really validating statement though for a lot of people is that mm -hmm. it's a full-time job sometimes to address this and like we don't want it to be that way it sucks that it is but there's so many different things to do and it is sometimes like it's a commitment to try to yeah. treat that and I think that like people should know maybe that I don't want to say that's normal but that that's sometimes what it takes it's like crappy as that is to yeah, hear me it is crappy and I tell them sometimes it's two full-time jobs on top of the full-time job mm -hmm. that they have or right so but I can't I stress to them I can't undo something that's been going on for 10 years mm -hmm. in, in two weeks or four two weeks, weeks or six yeah. weeks you can't undo a learned behavior and I give them an example and I think it kind of resonates if they have a child, I give them an example, like if your kid got caught up with a bad crowd of kids, you can't just, and they started doing bad things, let's say drugs or this and that, you can't just put them in a rehab for a day or a week and then put them back in their, their, their life and, and think that they're going to make changes right. I, I don't know if, if if that makes sense or if people like yeah. to eat a lot and they have self-control issues with eating it's like if you take those um people on the biggest loser show which i applaud their commitment to working out and really changing their lives but if they come from like a social environment where they do revolve around food and eating so they can work out with jillian michaels and lose 50 pounds but then if you go back to your environment and don't continue to work at it mm -hmm. you're not going to continue to lose the weight so I try and it depends who they are athletes I, I try and give them tangible examples so they realize that it is a full or two full-time jobs at once but it won't be forever it's not forever mm -hmm. right for sure well, okay so I feel like that brings us to like because I think we know as pelvic floor PTs we get a referral from the doctor and we know that we really have to like make all that education hit home so, and just because we, we tend to spend more time with them in general, right? Like weekly, 45 minutes to an hour session. So Amy, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe where you start with education and how you try to kind of what, what Iris was talking about with like lifestyle choices and diet and maybe um, environmental things. Where do you start as far as that goes? I know that's a big question. It doesn't have to be like, how do you do your whole entire treatment session? But you know, a little summary. Yeah. So I think that's a, a wonderful segue into also why uh, Dr. Orbach and I and other pelvic PTs work so well together is because Dr. Orbach sets the tone and then we continue that tone or vice versa. We set the tone and then we start to, I mean, hearing from, especially from a PT that like, oh, I wonder if it's endometriosis patients are like you have to tread lightly you have to really get to know the patient first before you make an assumption because again as as dr orbach's taught me the only way to diagnose is through um, biopsy so making that uh comment to a patient is you do have to i'm sorry i got a little off topic but no no no, no i think that's great knowing that you're you're speaking the same language is, right. is really and um, and yeah, so I similarly, I may mention, it, it depends on the patient. If I have a patient that comes in and be like, I tried nutrition, I tried this, blah, 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 you know, and just like tried all these things and is seeming very anxious, I may only say, okay, let's just start with some breathing exercises, 
and take, you know, a ball. I actually wasn't sure if this was video recorded, so I had all my little props out. Oh, no, you can verbalize what you're doing. There's, you take a ball. <laughs> take a little ball and start gently massaging, and that may be it for the first session, but giving, sending them home on the first day with something to do is so important so that they feel like they can get the control, some of the control back, so that they feel like there is hope, oh, I can help myself through this whole process. And yes, it is a second job, but if you, I find that if, again, depending on the patient, if you give them slow, um, small little increments of things to do, then that seems to work better than piling it all on and saying like, you have the, you know, nutrition and seeing an uh, excision specialist and the PT and mental health and getting out and exercising again. So the little steps is key, but really working with them on that too, because if they come in the next session, which is usually weekly, and they're not doing the breathing and they're not doing some of the massage okay, so why aren't you? Like, did, do you not understand it? Sometimes patients will even say, well, the breathing seemed to make my, seemed to make it worse. So then you go back, okay, let me watch you breathe. And then they're doing the wrong breathing. They're like, <gasps> like sucking up <laughs> straining. So even though that's not what you probably showed them, but um, you know, there's a learning process. So right. I, so I think really, listening to the patient too and re really getting to know what their level is of um, where they are at with their own health and their understanding in general um, of, of health and wellness. So it is individual, but home care, so actually this weekend, and unfortunately I'm not, I, I'm not gonna see Dr. Orbach, <laughs> but there's a endo summit going on here in New York, New York City, and I am teaching uh, with Corey Hazama, I'm teaching self-care to patients. That's and, awesome. Yeah. MPTs, we need it too, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that's really cool. And I think that's like something where it's really easy as PTs or to kind of say like, oh, well, what I can do right now for my patient is manual therapy. Let me focus on that because it's hands-on. It feels like it's doing something, but like what they do at home, which is like the breathing, the meditation, the diet is that's so right. important. And if we don't make that important, like they don't think that's important. And I think like that's big. I, what I love about the PTs who I work with is that you have the hour or 45 minutes to reinforce and develop this trust because they didn't have trust before. And then they realize at least like when I work, you know, with, with Amy, it's like the patients know it's a team, right? Or if I work with Corey or anyone at Beyond Basics or any of the PTs, it's like we're constant in communication we share our knowledge, we've worked together with many patients and the patients finally feel like they're well cared for. And then it's almost, I tell the patients when they say, oh, my PT's out of network, I don't know. I'm like, you're getting a therapy session at the same time you're getting pelvic floor <laughs> PT yeah. and you're getting a nutrition session and you're getting someone to counsel you about what kind of exercising you can do. I'm like, it's a bargain. <laughs> there oh you go. So that's what I. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just you get so much from a well-educated PT. Right. That's true. And we are. I mean, usually I feel like while we're doing the manual work, like we are talking the whole entire time. Where it's that therapy, or it's the nutrition, or it's the uh, exercise. Yeah. It's just yeah. Yeah. two birds with one stone. Mm -hmm. So, Amy, how do you find? How do you find uh, outside from Doctor Orbuck? How do you find other? excision specialist too, and, and Dr. Albrecht, you can definitely chime in too, is how do you find a good OB-GYN who actually will do an excision surgery? Because um, from what I read in your book, there a lot of OB-GYNs can be trained in ablation, but there's very specific training on excision and few that actually know how to do it properly. Yeah. So as a PT, honestly, I will ask like Dr. Orbach, or I'll ask I'll go to Nancy's Nook, which is a great resource. I'll ask, um, there's someone here in New York that runs uh, a online Facebook forum, and uh, Endo Warriors, and I'll ask her, like, have you heard of this physician? Because we get patients asking us too. So I'll, I, I, I always ask, because I, unless I know the name, um, I, I, I ask. And then, 
some some patients will they'll even just find physicians online. So you really have to do do your homework as a as a PT and also do the homework as a is it enough to just ask a doctor if they do excision removal, do you think? Can I answer that one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it is okay. not. Because um, patients, the physicians tell the patients they do excision, but they're doing one excisional biopsy for diagnostic confirmation. If mm -hmm. I tell you how many patients, because I always read all of the records in advance prior to the patient coming to my office. So we really try and get every operative report and the pathology report. Because often the docs also will put in that they did excision and they did multiple biopsies and they don't send pathology. And yeah. then I get the patients to call and ask specifically for the pathology and there's one biopsy that's two millimeters. So what so, did you use then? What what, what, what so I, I think the best question for a patient to ask the physician is if you go in and you directly ask them the question, they're not, I don't think they're going to answer it. So honestly, I think if you, well, not honestly, I hope all physicians are honest, but if you ask just out of curiosity, you know, what percentage of your practice is delivering babies versus surgery? So right then and there, if it's more than you know, 15% or 10%, if they're doing any obstetrics at all, they don't do excision. Like, yeah, for certain. There's okay. just no way that you could be. Oh, because you couldn't be like so good at that and also like be developing time towards delivering babies. Yeah, because you're up all night delivering babies. Like, Got are you going to trust someone who's up all night to then do your 7 a.m. surgery? I would hope, I mean, I would hope not. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way, when I was looking for an OB to deliver my kids, I didn't want someone who was a good surgeon, mm -hmm. right? right? I wanted someone who primarily delivered babies. I was just wondering, so if you ask them whether, what percentage of it is delivering babies and what percentage is doing surgery, Will they even say like, oh, well, I do surgery a lot because they're referring to C-sections and you have to be even well, more specific to that? And well, that's interesting. I didn't even think of that. So then you can ask them. So within your like 50% of surgeries, like what percentage are cesarean sections? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what percentage are endometriosis? Yeah. And then right. you can ask them, don't say, do you do excision? Say, can you tell me about your technique? Like, Listen, if, if, if I'm going to hire a plumber to redo my bathroom, I'm not going to have him come in and just take word that he's a, he or she's a good plumber. I'm going to do research on them. Mm -hmm. So you need to do research far beyond someone's website. I think gotcha. Nancy's Nook is really the best. But mm -hmm. even within Nancy's Nook, you have to do mega research. Because I know there's a lot of the surgeons in there who will say they do excision and they don't do excision. Mm. Well, so... Like for they example, biopsy. then they do, we'll do a biopsy. biopsy. Yeah. So do you like, is that the majority? I'm just curious now. I'm like, well, what's the majority of surgeries you do? Like, is like, do you do only excision or I do excision? I do, I do pretty much hundred percent minimally invasive surgery, maybe 99 and a half. There's a very small percentage where the, the, maybe they have a disease where they are, it's too risky. You know, maybe every couple of years I'll do an open surgery, but I do minimally invasive surgery only. And I, for the most part, do pelvic pain. Got it. I was just curious. The most part, you don't do any obstetrics. You don't do any obstetrics? I never, I haven't done in 17 years, baby, mm. delivering a baby. Since I finished my residency, I went straight into fellowship and then, yeah. Well, so why, we can kind of talk about like, cause I feel like when we came into this field it was like excision seemed like this like new agey type thing and then you just said that you've been doing it for like 17 years so oh, there's, <laughs> there's prospective randomized plus like control blinded outcomes that show that excision is better five-year data five-year prospective randomized following out for five years showing that excision is better than ablation and so, excision's been going on for a long time, long mm -hmm. time. It's just sure not many people do it because it's technically very, very, very difficult because you're operating on the bowel and the bladder. And like we get referrals from oncologists because they don't want to touch it because it's, they say it's harder than cancer surgery often. So mm -hmm. 
you know, someone who's dabbling in it and, you know, having to get to the office to see 20 patients to, for their prenatal checkups can't afford the time to do a tough endometriosis case. They, they, they can't. They're going to miss their deliveries. Like, you, you really can't do both. So it's, it's been going on for a long time, but not many people do it because of the technical aspect and the reimbursement aspect. Hmm. That's Happy really interesting. about that if you want me to talk Please. about that. Aspect. Go for it. So there's one code for destroying endometriosis, um, and it's 58662. So if I do one very difficult excision of endo case a day, let's say, some days I do three, but like, let's say I have a very difficult case and I'm really doing a good job, thorough excision. And then the, the surgeon in the next room is doing ablation of endometriosis and booking eight surgeries. Okay. I like to refer to those as picoscopies because it's not really even a laparoscopy. They're putting the laparoscope in and then they're taking a peek and they're not even recognizing the symptoms of endo. My mentor, that he made up that word, Harry Rich. So I don't want to take his, um, his word, but that's what a generalist is doing because they don't know what endometriosis looks like. So they're missing it. They're probably spending five, 10 minutes in someone. They're not even looking in the right places. So there's one code. I'm billing for a full day surgery, 58662. And that ablation doctor who's booking seven or eight cases in a day is using that same code. Mm-hmm. So what 58662 reimburses is about $600. Got it. So I can't be in the OR for a full day and make $600. How do I pay my staff? Right. I give everyone health insurance. I can't. I, so surgeons lose money if you, if you do endometriosis surgery. Well, how do you make money? Room. What? So then how do you, how do you so, work your way around that? So you have to go out of network because malpractice in New York, just to get a sense, you guys are in where? Texas. Austin, Texas. Okay. So I don't know what Texas is, but what patients don't realize, medical malpractice for an OBGYN in New York is about a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. Okay. That's no lawsuits. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a quarter of a million dollars, how many $600 surgeries do you have to do just to have malpractice? Yeah. Right. You can't because you have to carry the highest coverage. Like in New York, you need, you need very high coverage and you should. And so you can't, you're either going to do seven ablation surgeries, right? If you're going to do surgeries or you're going to have to not take insurance. Got it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who are doing excision surgeries are paying out of pocket. I, well, yeah. Or if they have good out of network benefits. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate. We have been lobbying ACOG, the AMA, AAGL to change those codes. And there's mm-hmm. been no movement on those changes. And, and, mm-hmm. and that that's like the bottom. That's the reason why they've not They've actually just every year I've been impressed. They've cut that code less and less money reimbursement, but malpractice rates keep going up. Yeah, right. that's so unfortunate. People are not getting the help that they need. They're not, and it's 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 that's it's beyond upsetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that just makes me think because like we're all clearly here, like recording a podcast, like on our own time, doing our thing because we we love what we do and want to help people. So from both of you, and you can take turns or whatever, but like, how do we as like PTs, how do we as doctors become better at like diagnosing, treating whatever endometriosis, whether that's like treatment or the way we talk to our patients, like that's a pretty vague question, but what comes to mind there? I think it's actually a great question. I think knowing all the symptoms of endometriosis, because I feel like my PTs know more than OBGYNs in terms of symptoms. So um, GI symptoms are, are huge in patients with endometriosis. So if someone mentions bloating or constipation, diarrhea, painful bowel movements, and then from a gynecological perspective, they can have either painful periods or painful ovulation, pain all month long. The pain can be before their period, after their period. It doesn't have to be only confined to their period. Um, and then painful sex, some have, some have urological symptoms, and then infertility, 50% of unexplained infertility is due to endometriosis. 
So some women have every symptom. Some women just have GI symptoms, but their periods are fine. Some people just have period pain, but they have perfect bowel habits and perfect urological habits. So knowing the symptoms and asking the right questions, I think is so important. Um, and then what I teach when I um, talk to physical therapists, one of the biggest ways for me to highly suspect whether a patient has endometriosis is, is when I do my physical exam and I do a vaginal exam. So um, typically the cervix should be right in the center. So equidistant from the left vaginal fornix and the right vaginal fornix. But what I find in endo patients is the cervix is pulled to one side or the other. So let's say it's pulled to the left side. It's because that left uterosacral ligament is infiltrated with endometriosis. So if I find the cervix pulled to one side and then with one finger, I push in that area on that uterosacral ligament and it reproduces pain, at least for me, I can say with 90% certainty, there's endometriosis there. Wow. I mean, Amy, do you do that in assessment too? Do like, I? Oh, no, I was asking Amy if she assesses the oh. cervix like that too. Um, well, I assess, I do assess the movement of the cervix. Um, I don't think to the same uh, specificity though as, as Dr. Uh, Dr. Orbach, but. Um, and then my, my uh, analysis has been more just also putting the pieces together. So looking at that um, and then putting the pieces of everything else together. And, and as a PT, like peeling away the layers of onion, but also knowing like, okay, their GI, yes, PT can address all the same symptoms, which makes it so confusing. Mm-hmm you're not getting better from, from the PT and you really feel like you've been doing a thorough job, then you should suspect something like SIBO or you should expect something like endometriosis and doing a thorough history is, is key too. And I do agree that PTs and excision surgeons like Dr. Urbach um, do that same thorough history so they're able to help differentially diagnose more so than just, um, and again, an OB, OBGYN that delivers babies, because they may, they don't have the training or they may just not have the time to go through that thorough evaluation and questioning of the patient. But back, sorry, back to the, um, do I do the assessment? I, I do. I also do some external too, to see what I feel is going on. But, um, but even, like, for me, and even externally, like, I do question is it, is it the muscle or or is there is there an implant? Um, I haven't done the internal uterosacral ligament, so I have to mm -hmm. learn. Yeah. No. I was just like thinking about assessing like the I know it's just the uterus. Yeah. Um, but okay, but also okay, so Amy, I want to come back to you because I want to see what you think about like making the PT profession better in terms of treating and diagnosing endo. But you're Dr. Iris, you're kind of in the middle of like Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you about that. <laughs> no, you're good. But you kind of going through like a thorough subjective, a thorough objective exam, then what? What else do you think? So for me, I've read all the records before that came in, and then I love to listen to my patients because the words that they use to describe their symptoms really tell me exactly what I'm, I know what I'm going to find on the physical exam before I even examine them by listening to them. Um, and that's just come from kind of doing it so often, um, every day, but, uh, then I combine the physical exam and I, I, can, I can say with a 90% certainty whether I'm going to find endometriosis or adenomyosis or, um, and then I, I, I push on different things so the patients can recognize, okay, this, I'm pushing on their left uterosacral and they're like, ouch, I'm like, that's endo pain. I'm like, does this feel different? They're like, yeah, that's different. I'm like, that's their tight muscle pain. And then I can push on the body of the uterus and they're like, oh, that's so weird. That hurts. I'm like, is that different than the other ones? I'm, they're like, yeah. I'm like, that's adenomyosis. So we can really differentiate, um, you know, where I think their pain is coming from. And then once I do that, then we come back and talk and I explain it even further to patients and then they, under, they understand. 
Yeah. It seems like you do a really thorough evaluation because <laughs> a lot of like sometimes doctors don't have that time to really like assess all of that. Well, what I explained to patients when I finished my OBGYN um, residency, I was a full-fledged OBGYN, you know, meaning you'd open an insurance provider. I was, I would have been one of those people. I then did, was fortunate enough to do a fellowship with two amazing mentors. And I, you know, it's astonishing, but I learned more about endo in my first week of fellowship than I did in four years of OBGYN training. And I remember my mentors um, pointing out to me, see this blue spot? That's endo. I'm like, really? See that yellow spot? That's endo. See that increase in all these blood vessels? That's endo. See that pocket of peritoneum? That's endo. See that retraction? That's endo. See that clear vesicle in that teenager? That's endo. And all I learned in my four years of residency were chocolate cysts and powder burn lesions. So I, I, I was very sad when I was learning all of, as much as I was so excited I was learning it, I was so sad for all these patients who had had these picoscopies by their you know, OBGYNs that I was the resident in learning who were told there's nothing wrong. Everything looks normal um, because it is not taught in general training. And it is such a shame because it affects close to 200 million women worldwide. It's 10% of the population. Mm -hmm. um, and a generalist is just not, I, what did I learn how to do in residency? I learned how to ablate endo. That's what mm -hmm. I learned. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until fellowship that I learned how to cut it out or excise it. Um, That's so crazy. I just, it's beyond crazy. It's beyond crazy. And then, yeah, it's, it's beyond crazy. So I just say find, you know, I think a way to find maybe excision surgeons who are not out of network is by going to a major medical center where they have like an endometriosis center. Um, yeah, I think that's another good way. But, but I think that they would probably be part of Nancy's Nook. Yeah, they'd be able to find it. And it Got seems it. like, at least for your case, that you did a fellowship on it, that you uh, feel like other OBGYNs who are really truly specialized in excision has to have some background, or had like a fellowship that they did? Or, it, or, depends, it depends on their age because the fellowships were just about starting when I was finishing. Mm. So if, if your doc is 30 years old or 35, there's no way they can be an endo excisionist. You really have, have to have had done a fellowship. It's rare that someone had so much training in residency. Interesting. And um, endo. That's just cool. You just like wouldn't know that. Yeah. Otherwise, well, like I don't know how people would know. Yeah, that still blows my mind about the like if they they're doing any obstetrics that they're like like that makes more sense. Honestly, I yeah. mean like. But you like, would not come see us if you have a wound care issue because like I'm legally allowed to treat that, but yeah, I don't, yeah. you know, I don't right. you know. That makes sense. I just like never thought about it. Like, yeah, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. It's just like fascinating. I could probably do a laparoscopic um, prolapse repair because sure. I, but am I going to do it? No. I would, right. I, if someone needed that, I would send them to someone who they specialize in that. So. Yeah. I, I think the, 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 the obstetrics analogy, when I was looking for an OB for my kids to deliver my kids, I wasn't, I wanted to choose someone who the mainstay of their practice was delivering babies. Mm -hmm. What if they were doing hard delivery, right? Yeah. I wasn't going to choose someone who does 50, 50. Mm -hmm. Right. It makes sense. That's what you would do for any type of issue, yeah. right? right. You have a heart issue, you have a foot issue, like whatever. Right. But, okay. All right, so Amy, let's go back to you. So tell us what you think as PTs we could do better, be better about bring more awareness about endo. Bring more awareness, but even just like how do we be better? Like what do we do to treat it better, to diagnose it better? Not that we're diagnosing, but you know what I mean. Like what would you say to like new PTs? I think similar to what Dr. Orbach said, you have to really ask the right questions. You have to really listen to the patient. You also have to see what they've done before and what has worked, if, any, if, if anything's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, and then really looking at the body as a whole and trying to see what the primary driver, because you, you could still have endo, but some of the primary drivers are musculoskeletal or painful bladder. Um, that's not saying 
that is going to get rid of the endo by any means, but definitely addressing the drivers and trying to narrow down what could be, um, what, what else could be going on with the patient and trying to guide them through that too. And that, that, that's a lot. I think that is more, uh, comes with experience as a PT, but knowing like, okay, this patient, the first person I'm gonna recommend may not be an excision surgeon. It may be a mental health therapist because they're so um, they're so worried about going to the wrong physician and they're so worried about everything that's going on. So I think also making sure that you're um, the next step for the patient is important too. Um, and then, as I said before, so also using your hands and learning where uterosacral ligament, learning how the cervix is supposed to move and, and the uterus and um, learning those things as well, but really uh, really helping to, to guide the patient and, and figure out where they are at too. Because again, if, if you say to a patient as a PT, first or even second, third visit, like, oh, I think you have endo. You may never see that patient again either. So mm -hmm. then you're also doing a disservice for that, not a disservice, but definitely not a disservice, but you're, you're losing the, they've already been to all There's a better way to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so definitely, definitely listening to the patient and trying to figure out where they are uh, with with their own care is, is really important. I probably could go on and on about different things. What we what you asked me before, self care. That is right. so. Um, even having uh, having endo surgery, if if you're not doing this self care, it's it's just not going to be as effective. Mm -hmm. I feel like so what y'all both kind of just said just makes it because we kind of like went straight through the question of like why did y'all write this book together and it's because it's like such a team effort it's like you almost not that you couldn't write it without the other person but it's like it takes this like medical team to treat this whole person mm -hmm. that's what y'all's like answers both made me like think of which is really cool from a peak I took and it wouldn't have been fun if I was writing it with there you go. <laughs> uh, but I, I t have my patients go to PT even the week of surgery. And now I'm having, over the last like year and a half, two years, I'm having them actually restart PT a few days post-surgery. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Can you talk about your protocol with that? Like after surgery, like what do you recommend for physical therapy and clearance also for like internal work and things like that? Are you restricting? Yeah. Recognizing that this is like you specific and not yeah. like specific to one patient, but just in general. Yeah, this is a this is very in general, but typically my patients have already been doing PT. Most of them have already done at minimum like six to ten one hour PT, you know, forty five minute to one hour, like one on one mm -hmm. PT sessions before surgery, and they they love their physical therapist. They really at that point recognize the benefit of their the the tight muscles and the improvement that they're obtaining. And then I have them schedule an appointment uh, a few days post-surgery. Mm. Um, but uh, internal work starts about six weeks uh, post-surgery. So you're okay with like all external yeah. kind of stuff, like to yeah. their tolerance and things yeah, like that? Yeah, because there's so much work. I mean, if, you're, if your core is off and your abdomen and your, it, everyone's body's pulled to the right or pulled to the left because of endo. Um, so there's so much work to do on the diaphragm and the shoulders and the neck and the thighs, the hamstring, the legs. The, I mean, there's so much work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Follow-up follow question is, so how often or do you see patients that you have to do multiple surgeries, like another surgery afterwards? It's, it's rare. I think I don't keep my stats, but it's definitely less than 5% of my patients do I re do a repeat surgery. And within that 5%, it's typically like someone who has um, endo and they have adenomyosis. Adenomyosis is endometriosis within the muscle of the uterus. And let's say they're quite symptomatic. Some people are asymptomatic and some are symptomatic. Symptoms could be just very heavy periods. They say it feels like it's a crime scene in my bathroom or, um, or they just have this uh, low sacral backache or 
um, so obviously if they desire fertility, we're not gonna touch their uterus at the time of surgery. So we do the excision of endometriosis. If they desire childbearing, you know, they go on and try and achieve how many children they want. And then when they've completed childbearing, then we do the definitive surgery for adenomyosis that's symptomatic, if they're symptomatic mm -hmm. at that point. So, which is a hysterectomy. So included in that 5% are people who, because they desire fertility, we maybe aren't gonna do everything that we could because we don't wanna risk certain things. Mm -hmm. We wanna give them the highest um, likelihood to achieve pregnancy. And with that hysterectomy, is a total hysterectomy? Like what do you leave and keep? So, so one thing before I answer that, great question mm -hmm. is that hysterectomy the myth this is a myth this is not a truth hysterectomy is not a treatment for endometriosis because by definition endometriosis is found outside of the uterus so hysterectomy to remove someone's uterus would be utilized only if they have um adenomyosis but they've already done treatments for everything else, meaning they've addressed the tight muscles, they've addressed the endometriosis, and then they have a hysterectomy. So there's two kinds of hysterectomy. So just the definition of hysterectomy, I think, is um, confused based on just like a lot of lay magazines. So hyster means uterus, ectomy means to remove. Like they used to say, which is just crazy, women were hysterical when they had their periods. That's how hyster mm -hmm. means uterus um so hysterectomy makes no mention of the ovaries so this is just referring to the uterus so there's a total hysterectomy which refers to removing the uterus and the cervix and then there's a super cervical hysterectomy which um, just removes the uterus but leaves the cervix behind typically most endo patients have endometriosis in the cul-de-sac or uterus sacral ligaments or the area behind the cervix so um if you do a super cervical hysterectomy and leave the cervix behind you tend to leave endometriosis behind which is on the back of the cervix mm. and then those people typically will still have a certain amount of pain and require a subsequent surgery. And that surgery is probably the hardest surgery that I do because it's going in and removing someone's cervix where the anatomy is completely distorted. Yeah. Um, so those are cases like I typically will, those are really hard surgeries with a big risk um, in those surgeries. So typically total hysterectomy is the right thing for endo patients, not super cervical. Okay. Interesting. And then what about the ovaries then? For that's, that's, you know, the ovaries are very, so contrary to the belief, the myth, it, the myth is castration helps endometriosis. That is not true. Mm -hmm. Removing people's ovary does not get rid of their endometriosis. Excising the endometriosis gets rid of endo. So you don't need to remove someone's ovaries. Yeah. Ovaries are the number, is what keeps our heart healthy and our everything healthy. Yeah, so we don't want to go around castrating women because I get so many women who come to my office, young girls who've had their uteri out, their uterus out, and they have no ovaries and they're like 35. Uh, so when you're assessing someone for endometriosis and you're also suspecting adenomyosis, so is there something that they say or something in the exam where you think like, oh, they also have Adenomyosis. Yeah, it's it's typically like heavy bleeding. Mm -hmm. I so heavy bleeding is subjective. So I like to ask kind of tangible questions. So I say, mm -hmm. do you ever soak through your clothes or through your sheets or through your tampons? And how many? How long would it take you to soak through a tampon or through okay. a pad? And then what size pad are you using? Like some people change their pad or tampon every forty-five minutes because they just don't like to be dirty. That's very right. different than. So I ask them soaking through clothing or sheets yeah. is, a, is a better okay. question. And so sacral backache, um, heaviness, fullness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is that like, I'll be honest, I just know less about adenomyosis. I don't know if you know this, but like in general, how many people tend to have both? You like know, in your practice? It's such a good question. So Typically, if someone comes in and says, I'm here for adenomyosis, they probably have endometriosis. Okay. But not necessarily the 
the opposite. The other way around. Exactly. If they have endometriosis, I don't, I don't know that statistic, but um, some have it. It doesn't mean you have adenomyosis if you have it. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. The reason adeno's picked up lots of times is sometimes you see it on an MRI or an ultrasound. Got so it. It's being diagnosed. People are coming in and saying, oh, I have adeno. That's, so that's not the test of choice though. It's not the test. Only if you're with like a good fertility doctor who's doing the ultrasound or yeah. If you just go to a random radiologist, it's on, it's not going to be picked up. Okay. So oh, then, okay. sorry. The, the, so I know that endometriosis has like a 10 year delay of diagnosis, but would you say the same thing, same thing for adeno or it gets picked up sooner then? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I've never seen stats on that. I just mm -hmm. think anything that someone's suffering for more than two months is too long. And these mm -hmm. women are suffering for years. Yeah, for sure. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have a question because I have a patient that came in. She's like, I have an endometrioma. Therefore, my endometriosis has returned. And I was like, huh, I don't know whether to agree or disagree with you because I'm not sure what that means. Yeah. That's so, what everybody thought. <laughs> so, um, disagree. So once you have endo, you always have endo. It doesn't mean you're going to be symptomatic. Okay. So the thing you have to know, the question is, did she have an endometrioma prior? Mm -hmm. And then, because if you have an endometrioma, you have a higher likelihood of having a subsequent endometrioma. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. This person, even, yes. she had had one before, but. Okay, so even in, in my hands, and I, endometriomas are like my favorite surgery within endometriosis surgery, there's about a 40% recurrence. Mm. So can it's, we kind of explain what the like en endometrioma oh, sure. is? Endometrioma is a cyst of endometriosis within the ovary. So it's the location. So it's within the ovary. So the proper treatment to remove the endometrioma is to excise in the entire cyst wall. So mm -hmm. I'm literally separating out the cyst from within the ovary and its contents. Mm -hmm. what, what did I learn in my residency? I learned the wrong thing. I learned that we pop that endometrioma, we drain that chocolate crap all over the pelvis so it spills and starts sticking everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then we burn the capsule of that lining, thereby killing a bunch of eggs. Oh, that's what I learned how to do. That's the wrong thing to do. And even now, our American College of OBGYN, the last time I took my boards, I think I had three or four questions. Like, how do you not want to address an endometrioma? Pop and drain is how you don't want to deal with it. The problem is most generalists are doing that still. Wow, so what cool. happens if a patient had an endometrioma and they're like, oh yeah, six months later, I still have, oh, I have a new one forming. It's not new. It probably wasn't treated mm. properly. Now, okay. if that patient, so if it's popped and drained, it's for certain going to come back because they never got rid of it. Hmm. You have to remove the cyst wall. Okay. I'll follow up on that. But then that's going to... And, and, and the, the Cochrane database says that if the best way to prevent recurrence of an endometrioma is prevention of ovulation. So the best way to do that is birth control pills. So that's the time I do recommend birth control pills post-surgery is if a patient had an endometrioma. So then is there a higher risk for like infertility if something, something can go wrong kind of thing? So like, endometrioma, over the last like three years in all my endometriosis patients, I've been having, I've been drawing or either sending them to a reproductive endocrinologist or having them draw an AMH level, which is an anti-malarian hormone level um, to assess fertility. Because typically, you know, listen, there's many women who are diagnosed with endometriosis after they had three kids, mm -hmm. right? So it doesn't mean someone's gonna have infertility, but there is a higher likelihood. So what's great about the internet is we're picking up endometriosis patients younger and younger and younger. You know, teenager, I'm getting tons of teens, which I love, and college-age students. And they're so happy. Well, they're sad when they get their lower AMH results back, but they're happy because then they go freeze their eggs and then they have a bank of these eggs as opposed to being you know, 30 years old and then having infertility. And then, mm -hmm. so 
I'm trying to be proactive with my patients. That's so cool. yeah. Yeah. Do you want so, to talk about that? Like how you're getting them younger and younger? Cause that is, that's interesting. That's not something we really know about. I think I do. I, that's what I'm most passionate about. I have two daughters and, um, I, to me, I love taking care of, to, to me, if, what happened was a lot of the moms I was treating, they started bringing me their daughters. Oh, okay. So they're like, this is how I was when I was 12 and 13. This mm-hmm. is where I started, but I didn't meet you until I was 42. Right. Like, like, so I, and then I started just seeing a lot of teenage patients and reading a lot. And the, the, the statistics are crazy because we know endo for a large part, it's genetic. So if the mom has it or the grandma or the aunt, it could be paternal or maternal side, there's a seven to tenfold higher likelihood that that teenager will have it or that fetus will have it. So um, it's getting teenagers who have painful periods, like really painful periods, it's 70% of them have endometriosis. That's a lot. (laughs) So my teenager, my my 14, 15 year olds already have tight muscles. I'm sending them to pelvic floor PT. Mm-hmm. And that I'm not jumping to operate on them. I'm right. educating them. I'm sending them to pelvic floor PT. I'm teaching about nutrition. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching them how to manage their anxiety and their stress. Their Most of them have SIBO already. I'm treating them to evaluate and manage all of that. I'm educating them. And then at some point we do surgery. Right. That's I don't know what that point is. That point's different for every patient. Oh, of course. And since you're treating, getting them at a younger age, do you ask them, do you want to have kids and then encourage them to like breathe their eggs? I typically don't bring that up on the first appointment. Yes, yes, of course. Because <laughs> it's just way too much. I, I need to develop their trust before we even talk about fertility. Mm-hmm. If they bring it up, I will address it. Sure. But I usually will bring it up at the second appointment or the third appointment. Um, mm-hmm. And they're and all so appreciative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have a plan. They just want answers and a plan. Right. So uh, we're coming up uh, and finishing up this session. And we just wanted to thank you guys so much for this awesome interview. And we really want people to be able to get a hold of you or get a hold of your book. So tell us where to find what's the name of your book again and where you're selling it um either one of you can answer that so the name of our awesome book (laughs) yeah (laughs) beating endo how to reclaim your life from endometriosis and you can buy it at anywhere that major books are sold so amazon barnes and noble um, I think it has an audio version, and we're trying to get it translated into different languages. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's great. Oh, and then we're also doing a giveaway on our Instagram. Yeah. We'll have this run until the end of March, and then we'll fit, fit, we'll pick four people to, like, win the book. You just have to, like, comment someone's name on our, like, Instagram post. Yes, they were very great. Uh, we're very grateful that you allowed us to get, yeah. do these the book giveaways. This is our first time doing it, too, so we're very excited. Um, and so we also want um, our listeners to get a hold of your social media accounts so that you can say websites or Instagram, Twitter, whatever you guys have. Um, Amy, you can go first. Uh, Beyond Basics Physical Therapy is our website and our social media, which we do Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, is at Beyond Basics PT. And Dr. Orbuck, what about your social media? Sure. Um, Instagram is at Dr. Iris Orbuck, so at D-R-I-R-I-S-O-R-B-U-C-H. And my website, which has tons of copy that I wrote myself, um, and I spent a lot of time putting accurate information on there, is L-A-G-Y-N-D-R.com. Cool. Are you guys teaching any classes that you want our listeners to learn about or going to be like presenting in any events or summits uh, anytime soon? Uh, I'm speaking this weekend, which may be after your, this podcast goes live um, at the Endo Summit. And I'm doing various other uh, lectures, um, not all specific to endometriosis. That's cool. And I'm going to be, uh, for the end of March, which is, uh, March 28th, I'm going to be speaking in Chicago at the, oh, that's where I'm from. 
Oh, so I'll be at the, I'm going to be speaking at the end of March um, in Chicago. So it's my next uh, speaking. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys again so much for being on today. We learned a lot and it was really cool. I feel like the hour just flew by. Yes, it's so fun to talk to Please you read their book. It was amazing. We really enjoyed it. Can, can I say one thing? Thank you so much for your enthusiasm and excitement and passion and Thanks for reaching out to us. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for saying that. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget the material and content within this podcast is general information being discussed between two physical therapists and not meant to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Again, we would love to hear what you guys think, so please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send comments or questions to ptbelowthewaist at gmail.com. And don't forget to check back in a few weeks for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss how pelvic floor PT can address bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction.